The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for, that, for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Bryce. Well, again, I'm glad to be with you this morning. I was reading an article in uh, Newsweek that caught my attention. It said, Saudi Arabia gives citizenship to a non-Muslim English-speaking robot. Thought it was interesting. Here's how, here's how it went. Meet the newest citizen of Saudi Arabia, an English speaker named Sophia, who is an outspoken materialist, doesn't wear traditional religious garb, and is quick to mock Hollywood. Oh, and she's a robot. The Arab nation on Wednesday became the first state to grant citizenship to an android, raising questions not only about the definition of citizenship, but also about human rights in the devout Muslim country. I thought this was an interesting thing. Saudi experts pointed out that the robot has more privileges than actual living Saudi women. It was an advancement of tech for the country, but what does it do? Raised a lot of questions. Some were even saying women in Saudi Arabia have since even committed suicide because they couldn't leave the house. And Sophia is running around, said, uh, said one gentleman, director, who is the director of the, uh, the institute there. That the laws of citizenship in that country were so interesting that this robot would receive that. Imagine what it would be like in that specific area. For most of us, we don't think about our citizenship much. I would assume that most of us don't like day to day think that. But what if, what is it that would infringe it? What pushes the boundaries to make you think of your citizenship? 
Can you imagine being, being like there listening to Sophia, this robot who actually gave a dialogue with the people in the room? It was kind of a, a, to an effect what one uh, way the country was trying to push their technology and actually uh, grow the country in tech. But also at the same time taking a huge step back and many in the room feeling and seeing something that is not of them and has more rights and citizenship than they do. What do you think that would feel like? Can you imagine having that infringement in your life? That's hard for us. We usually don't have that. We can distance ourselves. And there are moments when our rights or those kind of things come a little bit in contact and we get a little irritated and agitated. But where is it in your life? Where would you say that you find you're kind of most pressed to herald your rights? To hold your freedom? You know, this passage is an interesting one because it's a letter essentially written to a Roman colony. Paul is writing to a bunch of Romans who have Roman citizenship. So when it says later in the passage about uh, being a citizen of heaven, they would see citizenship and they would realize what that means for them. But Paul wants them to see that, that, that there's something odd to it. There's something different about being a citizen in heaven. It should actually come in contrast to the citizenship you have on earth. And that's really the singular question that I think is being raised from this passage. Is how does your citizenship in heaven actually press up against and even change or push or transform the way that you see yourself as a citizen on this earth? Or do you sit in apathy of even your citizenship in heaven as much as you may in your citizenship on earth? Where does it press in? Look, being a Christian, the more I read about this passage and theologians and quotes and all these things, it is so interesting how much the word odd came up. That being a Christian is odd. Because if we're really being Christians, if we're really following Jesus, if we really claim a citizenship that is not of this earth but of heaven, it should actually, actually change the way that we live our lives. It should change the way that people see us. It should be like, there's something different about that. It may not always taste good to the world around us. But should it be something that pushes, shouldn't it change us in a way that we are not just living for this world, but we're living for something else that's going to transform it? Is that you? Where is your heart? Look, C.S. Lewis said it beautifully when he said this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Are we ineffective as Christians? Because we don't really understand the rights that we have, not on earth, but in heaven because of who we follow. Look, this passage is one that Paul's writing, and I think there are two simple marks of our citizenship here. One is maturity. Are we maturing? Are we maturing? Do we see ourselves growing in, in Christianity? Do we, in our relationship to Jesus, that is. 
And, and do we also see an imitation? Secondly, is there an example of that? Citizenship shows maturity and imitation. That's what he's getting at here. And he begins here with, not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfect, but press on to make it my own. When Paul talks about this, and he's, he's moving on to maturity. In verse 15, it says, let those of us who are mature think this way. He's talking about the previous things he's saying. The fact that there's a mindset, a maturity. Are we actually growing in Christ? But there's a contrast there. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm perfect. Now, you would think, and that, here's what's interesting about that. To be mature means you need to be perfect, independent. The way we weigh maturity in our culture is to be independent, to not really need, to really be self-sufficient, powerful, right? Maturity is put in those terms, but here it's different. Maturity is looking upward, not inward. It's looking upward to God, looking upward to Christ and knowing where we really are. I, I know for me, when I read this, Paul is referring back to two things here. He says, not that I'm already made perfect. He's referring back to when he just talked about what he's being made in Christ, righteous, wonder, you know, uh, in him. But he's also referring to a group of people that really believe that they are being perfect. And isn't it interesting, morally and spiritually, that those of us that find ourselves being more perfect are those who are the most harsh those who are not as mature as we find ourselves to be. I, I think it's interesting here that he says, and I, I find that maturity and, and, and this perfectionism, the way it plays out for us, is the fact that we think we have our arms around the gospel. We have this gospel down. The moment that we think that, there's, there's a reason I prayed that earlier. I, I think as Christians, and if you're here learning about Christianity, you're coming back into the church. One of the things that we're talking about the gospel is the good news of Jesus. That maturity isn't so much about you learning more about him, but as being with him. What is your deep fellowship? What is your relationship with Jesus like? Well, that is the barometer of maturity. That's the the, the, the deal, and, and, and for many of us, we may think, I have the gospel down. Mature as Christians, that we look to other people that may have the gospel down so that we can come to a place where we've arrived. But the, it is those people, and I don't just mean those out there, I mean those of us, and those moments where we say we've got the gospel down is when we look at other people and we say, they don't get it. We are the ones who are right. And we find ourselves more embittered. And we find ourselves not praying at all. And we find ourselves seeing church as something that we just see as a piece of our lives. Not as something that actually is coming to engage a God who really wants to teach you more about him. Are we finding ourselves striving for perfect? Or is there more to that? Maturity is more. And he even says this, I do not, he says, I, but I press on to make it my own because of Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see that? 
And brothers, I do not consider, and when he says brothers, by the way, that's a word that incorporates brothers and sisters. It's a, uh, it's a, a larger uh, uh, term. He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's actually an athletic term. And he uses this in other places in, in his letters to churches to talk about pressing forward. It's a gaze. I was sitting with somebody this week and it was, um, it was so fun to talk to them. Uh, I, I was actually, I had the opportunity, I walked on in track in college and I wasn't a big deal. I didn't do anything. But I, it was just an interesting experience and I enjoyed it. But I, one of the things that, one of the meets I got to do in College Station, Texas, when we, uh, I went to Baylor and, and, and uh, we were running against A&M and all these uh, schools way back in the day, is the Olympic team had come to do an actual decathlon, part of their training before. And so they had like an A, B, and C group. Of course, I was in the C. And the Olympic people were in the A group. <laughs> and, uh, and when the C group finished, you could watch the A group go. And I remember sitting in the stands watching uh, these athletes doing 10 events and just in marvel. And the thing that caught my eye, one of the, 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 the guys uh, who was training for the Olympics was on a par to break the point total for decathlon, like literally shatter records right there at, in the middle of College Station, Texas, which was incredible. And he goes up and he's about to plant for the pole vault and his pole breaks which is always the biggest fear. And he just flies down and it just kind of shook him and he lost all his points in, in that event. And so we're all watching, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? And the thing that was so amazing about this caliber of an athlete was that he, he just totally wiped it out of his mind. He may not have broken, he, his, his, you know, obvious glory to break this record for U.S. decathlon was shattered. But then what he did was he focused on his next event. He had to leave it behind. And I remember going on and doing horribly in one of my events and then trying to do another one. And it was so hard to get past it. And there was a masterful aspect to this. This is what Paul is talking about. There's an aspect of pressing forward. Maturity is not just living in the past. That's what perfectionism actually does. It makes you go, I'm doing really great. I've done really great. It makes you sit on your haunches to think that you've done great. What he's talking about is pressing forward, looking ahead. It actually means a single-minded zeal or concentration. It's a laser focus on the upward call, not on doing great, but on what? The one who has made him his own. That is Jesus. You know, citizenship isn't about us showing necessarily, proving our citizenship all the time. It is the fact that we are made his own. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's not a relationship with things. It's a relationship with Christ. The measure, the barometer of who you are as a citizen of heaven is, how is your relationship with Jesus? What is it? And it should actually be disorienting to you and I. It should be something that actually disorients who we are. Look, Roman citizenship was enormous for them. In fact, Philippi was called a, a little Rome for a reason. When Philippi was founded, it was lavished with every Roman privilege it could have. The architecture was Roman. 
The language of Latin was used over and over in, in, in documents and things. It was used even the clothing sold and worn was Roman clothing. Everything was to fit in. Are you showing, are you displaying your relationship by your citizenship? This is why Paul is saying this. The Bible is saying that we have a citizenship that is different. And it's asking you and I, what citizenship governs your life? If you really want to mature, if you really want to grow in Jesus, if you really want to grow as a Christian, and that, and that actually may be a place where you're saying, I don't know if I do. If you want to learn how to do that, it's by looking at the one who has made you his own. It's deepening that fellowship with him. It's noticing where do I herald my citizenship here far more than I would my citizenship in heaven? Where do I think growth and maturity and power and strength come from everything I can gain here and not who I am in Christ? If your relationship with Jesus isn't constantly disorienting and making you see your true citizenship over and over here, you have to ask, do you understand it? Do you and I know that it's an upward call? It's not I press on to make it my own, period, but because Christ has made me his own. It should disorient us. I started reading, I know I'm way behind, some of you are gonna laugh at this. I started reading the Harry Potter books Yes, thank you. Laugh. Um, but you know what's interesting about them? You know, all the hoopla. and it's, They're fun. Um, but what's interesting about it is how much Harry, even if you haven't read it, how Harry essentially is trying to bridge two worlds. He lives in the human world, which they call the muggle world, and learns later that he's a wizard, and tries to live in this magical world. But what's interesting is when he goes back to his human world where he had to live under a cupboard and was treated poorly, nobody really knows his fame in the human world. But it's interesting after he spends a whole year at Hogwarts and goes back to that human world, how he sees all his relationships, good and bad, differently. Because he sees himself in relationship to something else differently. It should disorient us by living in our citizenship in heaven. It should press in and cause you to evaluate your citizenship on earth. What are your rights that you hold? What are the way, the stances you take on things? Not just in, in, in certain, uh, uh, you know, slices of life, but as a whole ethic are we living a Christian ethic that presses in on this citizenship in, on earth that causes you to be disoriented over and over and over? It should, because that is what he's wanting them to understand. And it should cause us to be deeper in compassion and care and love. If we really are making sense of who we are, in Christ, because he has made us his own. It's not about me obtaining a citizenship. What is citizenship? Maturity isn't, and what we think is grabbing it ourselves. But this citizenship isn't one you earn or you make it your own. It's one that's given to you. 
There's no test you have to take. There's no money to be paid. The debt has been paid. It is in him. It should transform your compassion. It should show you your life within. And it should show you how you treat those around you, how you walk in this city, how you see the parts around you and the places that are corroding and dying, even though they look beautiful. Because we can get lost in the, in the, in the citizenship of this earth and not remember that we are called to carry something different because we have been given something different. Does it reflect that? And that's why he even moves from there to verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to example you have in us. For many whom, of whom I have often told you now, even tell you, <clears throat> even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says we need to imitate him. That there needs to be imitation. It's not just maturity, but imitation. Example. And here's what's interesting. What is the example? Like, who are those people in your life that you go, I want to be like them? What are the books that you read? It would be very interesting to see what you have on your Audible, on your phone, whether you listen to books, or what books you read that really encourage you to grow. I'd be curious what that is. Where do, you, where do you pursue? What are the things that you long to imitate? And Paul gives us diagnostic questions here that I think are interesting because he talks about imitation comes from one quick thing here. It is you're either taking up the cross or you're an enemy of the cross. Are you an enemy of the cross? The cross of Christ is a crisis of imitation. Because it's not something that's easily taken. It, to even talk about it here would be like, oh, why would I want to do that? And if there's anything that's missing in, in the local churches today, it is our focus of Christ's example and moving to the cross. It is the imitation of taking up the cross, not just holding it out, but living it. Here's something really interesting I read from what's called The Great Opportunity. It's American Church 2050, written by a group called Pine Tops, the Pine Tops Foundation. Listen to these statistics they talk about um, that they did research for months and months on. So we began this project as an attempt to understand how we as a foundation should think about supporting the work of the church in America. And what we found challenged many of our assumptions as a result of months of research, we now think we are at a pivotal moment in the life of the American church. What we found was the largest missions opportunity ever in American history. And if we move quickly, we can help introduce tens of millions of young people to Jesus over the next 30 years. Here's what they found, particularly even in the, the next generations moving up. It says, <clears throat> um, uh, 35 million over the next 30 years will decide to leave the church. It could be as high as 42 million or worse, not due, they say, to secularization, but due to indifference. They simply do not like the Christian life they have seen. Not as a crisis of faith or intellectual rejection, just not interested in the Christian life they saw. Europe was a gradual and due to, uh, gradual and due to sec uh, secularization. America, though, is fast and due to indifference. 
when Paul is talking about imitation here, he is saying there must be a radical shift in the way that we display our citizenship. This is a reality. These are not, some of you may like go statistics, bore. But there's something really scary and powerful the fact that 42 million may walk away from the church simply because of indifference. And many of you in this room may be walking back in. Some of you have walked away and have come back. Some of you are, I'm just thankful that you would come visit us this morning. And I hope this drives you to the fact of where this comes. Because the point of the example isn't that we need to be doing more. The point of this imitation that Paul is saying isn't that he needs to display more work in the church. It's simply, are we taking up the cross of Christ? Are we showing that we're enemies of it? And the cross of Christ is a crisis because it means there's a denial of self. It means it's not all about you and me. It means there's a lot more to it. It says this, uh, and <clears throat> in, in, uh, one commentator said this, a true Christian sign of contradiction is a living symbol of the cross. He or she is a person who lives the unbelievable, bears the unbearable, forgives the unforgivable, loves the unlovable, is perfectly happy not to be perfect, is willing to give up his or her will, becomes weak to the strong, and finds love by giving it away. Like he, he gives us the diagnostics of what it means to be an enemy of the cross. He says in verse uh, 19, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. Look, the, <clears throat> that their end is their destruction because their God is their belly. It's not talking about food. It's talking about this overarching understanding of authority and satisfaction. It's the fact that what... The phrase is really interesting. It's not talking about dictating their appetite, but really it's saying this. They recognize no need and no authority for outside personal satisfaction. Do you find your deepest satisfaction in taking up the cross or does it cause you a reaction to move away from it? see, Paul is not trying to set up an imitation to imitate me because I have it. Per Notice, here's what's interesting. He begins by saying, not that I've attained it, I'm not perfect, but imitate me. It may be like, why? Because he's saying, it's not about me. It's about the cross of Christ. I'm taking it up. It's about what has been done. What does the cross mean? It means that it's not about you. It means self-denial, not self-indulgence. It means that you don't look at everything surrounding you as fulfilling your need. But the cross of Christ means someone has died because of those needs. It means that Jesus, it means that you cannot do it on your own. What is the cross? There's one hanging right above me. And we celebrate it as a fashion statement. And this is not to tell you, everybody who's wearing one, you should take it off. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to think about the fact that when he would mention the cross here to a group of Romans, they're like, yeah, we kill people on that. For them, why would you take up the cross? Enemies of the cross? Well, yeah, I'm in it. I don't want to be with the cross. For them to take on citizenship meant you are taking on the citizenship of one who took up the most despicable death as one who is actually considered an insurrectionist against the state. Do you realize that's what the cross is? They hung people on it because they were against the state. 
If you may recall, Jesus was sent to the cross because they said, crucify him. He wants to be, he goes against the, 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 uh, the government. We want to kill him. And Pilate even said, no, he's not a threat to my kingship, but yeah, I'll give him over to you. And yet he did so anyway, knowing there was an insurrection against the state. And yet we needed him to go so that we may be brought in as citizens. Enemies brought in. That is the imitation. It's self-denial versus self-indulgence. It's not about us. But it's about us growing in him. It's about going back over and over in him. I love it. C.S. Lewis says it again. He says this about what it means to be a, a growing up in Jesus. Listen to this. Two kinds of pretending. There are two kinds of pretending. There is the bad kind where pretense is there instead of the real thing. But there's also a good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing. That is why children's games are so important. They're always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they are hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-ups helps them to grow up in earnest. Look, some of you may stop for a second and say, okay, we need to show ourselves more of this. Seriously though, are we displaying imitation and example of the gospel in our lives so that others may look at it and go, there's something, that may be odd and weird, but there's something about it. Is there imitation of the cross? Of, is there imitation because we've taken up the cross of Christ? It's not the, the, uh, that we're not trying to satisfy ourselves. We're looking upward, not inward to who we are in him because we are his. Unhealthy imitation drives us to ourselves. Unhealthy imitation, you know, causes you to look in the mirror and say, I wanna look more like that. Causes you to hear someone and say, I wanna think more like that. But when you've already been brought in and told here's who you are, then you can say, I want to display that. I want to look for people that point me not just to being good qualities of earth, but good qualities of taking up the cross that define us following Jesus, practicing it, shaping our minds, shaping our hearts, shaping us. We don't need to know more about Jesus. We need to know Jesus more. And I know that sounds like such a simple thing. No, that's really it. If you want to learn what it means to be a citizen, it's by knowing the one who has brought you in. I, I used this example uh, some time ago, but I, I, even further detail on it was interesting. It's knowing the royal wedding with Meghan Markle that, about her citizenship that was interesting was that for couples in England, there's like a, a financial requirement, right? I think she's meeting that now. There's also a proof of living situation, which I think she's meeting that now. But here's what's fascinating. All this hoopla about Meghan Markle and her citizenship and it, her going through all the hoops and all of it, what really created her being a citizen? It was her marriage. 
It's her marriage. To one that would possibly one day sit on the throne. You understand that that the only reason we can talk about citizenship at all is the fact that we have somebody of royalty who sits on the heavenly throne. It is not the fact that we can come to this table and claim we have citizenship in our own. This table means we are only admitted because Jesus has given us our citizenship because we are married to him. That's it. We can't claim it on our, on our rights or our significance. Our rights and significance are all in him. Look, you can claim as much earthly citizenship as you want, but it will never give you the freedom. It will never give you the significance of knowing who you really are. That's why this passage says at the very end of it, who we are going to be. Our citizenship is from heaven, and from it we what? Await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him uh, him even to subject all things to himself. The goal of this table is not to prove your citizenship. If you're here this morning and you want to prove it, please don't come. The goal of this table is to say you are a citizenship. You are a citizen and you are Jesus's and you have citizenship of him. The goal of this table is to be with him, not to do another thing to prove anything of your worth or significance. It is his table, not ours. Let's stand together now.